I invite you, if you have a, a Bible with you, to turn with me to our passage. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in the rack in front of you. Uh, whichever you're using, we're going to be reading together out of Matthew uh, chapter 12. You can find the sermon passage on page 817 uh, of the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you. Uh, page 817, uh, we're looking at verses 22 uh, down to verse uh, 37. Uh, we have the last few weeks explored some of the most gracious, uh, kind, and tender words that the Gospels record about Jesus. Uh, some in, in incredibly heartfelt compassion uh, from him towards uh, those who are in need. That continues here in the actions of Jesus. But we also are going to turn and see some very difficult and challenging words. Uh, some hard words uh, towards Jesus' hearers this morning. Some very challenging words. So I invite you to, to listen carefully, to take these to heart, and see if they may uh, apply to your heart as well this morning. Matthew 12, begin reading at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless... He first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, as we come to these mighty words, 
towards the hard-hearted Pharisees today. I pray you would soften each one of our hearts and we would hear anew and afresh the warnings of this text. And I pray especially, O God, that we would not as individuals or as your people ever take your forgiveness and your grace for granted. That we would not ignore, overlook, or downplay, or dismiss it. But God, this very day, by your Spirit, might we come face to face with our need for you. And we pray that you would give each of us saving faith to repent and turn and trust upon Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, During the evening sermon series uh, here at Covenant Reformed, we have been going through 1st and 2nd Samuel. If you know those books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you know they tell the story of the rise and fall of many kings. Uh, They began, of course, with King Saul and his rise, and then very quickly his demise, uh, his fall, uh, his defeat, and ultimately his death. As he goes down, King David goes up, and King David rises, and he comes to power, and then he has some rough times, and then he falls. We meet, we've met another supposed king called Absalom. We will meet tonight another uh, uh, threat to the throne, Sheba, and his rebellion. It's the story of kings rising and falling, but a king's not a king unless he's calling a bunch of people to come follow him. And so while the books of First and Second Samuel look at the kings, they really look at each of us. They really ask us, who are we following? All of these kings are making a claim for you and me to follow them. And who do we follow? Now, it's easy to dismiss the old guys in the Old Testament as having nothing to do with me today, and yet we should read, coming onto the scene and stage of history, a new king, a better king, a forever king, Jesus. And just as the kings of old demanded loyalty of the people under them, so too does this king demand our loyalty. You see, we can read back Saul, David, Absalom, all those guys doesn't matter who I follow, which one I follow, which one of them is it, do I go with or, or stay home or ignore or have loyalty to. But when it comes to Jesus, we can't escape this demand for loyalty. There's nowhere to run. There's, there's nowhere to hide. King Jesus demands of all of us loyalty. And not a single one of us can evade this demand. I want to show you that this morning. I want to show you in our text how King Jesus demands your loyalty. I'm going to show you there's three truths. There's three parts of this demand uh, in his words. Before we get to our our points, though, look with me just a moment at the setting of our text. Uh, King Jesus is again oppressed. This time the the, uh, the, um, rejection of Jesus, the plots against Jesus, The desire to destroy Jesus is increasing. It is strengthening. We have here even a demon-oppressed man who has shown up uh, in his midst. This man may be the greatest challenge Jesus has faced of yet uh, in his healing and uh, exorcism ministry. You see in verse 22, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. It's a pretty serious condition they brought to Jesus. At this point in the Gospels, Jesus is encountering sick and and hurt people 
Less and less for them in and of themselves and more to make a point to the people around him. Have you noticed that? It was almost two weeks ago that the the lame man healed in the temple on the Sabbath was less about the man and more about the Sabbath. Here it seems we care little about the man that Jesus heals. The Pharisees just care about making their theological point right. Matthew shows us, however, the demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute in his physical eyes is but a preparation for the blind spiritual eyes we're going to meet in just a moment with the Pharisees. Jesus heals this man. We see in verse 23, the people are amazed. They say in their amazement, I think also somewhat with disbelief, can this be the son of David? I think we could maybe rightfully put another word in there. Can this really be the son of David? Or we can flip it around and say, this can't be the son of David, can it? This can't really be the one to fulfill all of our Old Testament messianic expectations. This can't really be him. The man's healed. The people are amazed. Then the hard-hearted Pharisees come in and look at their response that sets the stage for Jesus. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, who's that? That's the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. What I want you to see here real quick is how, how arrogantly the Pharisees dismiss Jesus. He has done, and I know it's happened quickly because Matthew is writing quickly for us. He has done a miraculous healing. Blind, mute, demon oppressed, sent out from the man. And all the Pharisees can do is dismiss him with arrogance. Jesus, verse 25, in a phrase that should quite honestly haunt many of us, says, knowing their thoughts. Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees who had so arrogantly, so casually dismissed him and the the questions and the claims about him. I'm not sure that this actually tells us that Jesus has unique divine insight in this moment into the Pharisees. I think he just knows people very well. I think in this very moment, he sees such arrogant antagonism and dismissal of him and his claim. He reads them like a book. You see, our, our dismissal of Jesus at times, maybe it appeases our own conscience and maybe it tricks people around us, uh, but it doesn't trick him. He sees right through us. And in some of the boldest words that Jesus has says yet in Matthew's gospel, he challenges them. And I want you to see now our three points uh, coming out of this setting. How does King Jesus demand our loyalty? Our first heading in this, we might call it battle, King Jesus draws the lines, verses 25 to 30. You know this idea in an argument, in a war, in a confrontation, sometimes there's those, those moments when clear lines are drawn, Right? This line is not to be crossed. This is on one side. This group is on the other side. Jesus clearly draws the lines. And the topic here is not earthly warfare. You've picked up on this. The topic here is spiritual warfare. It is the, the, the serious, sobering reality that though we face conflicts and opposition 
and frustrations, person to person, people to people, group to group in this world. That therein lies behind all of that a spiritual warfare. That there are spiritual beings, angels, excuse me, and demons in the world around us. There is a, a very real, though we cannot see it with our spiritual eyes, the Bible testifies to it. There is a very real, ongoing spiritual warfare around us. So Jesus is dealing with an incredibly serious and sobering topic. Pharisees have seen him heal a demon-oppressed, blind, and mute man, and they have an explanation for it. Their explanation is that Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. That is, he uses the authority of Satan to cast out these other demons. Jesus is going to give a number of responses to that, and he's going to give us the truth of the matter. The first response he gives to this, uh, this explanation is found in verse 26. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. He's using just a, a basic metaphor from the world. A kingdom, a city, a house that is divided against itself cannot stand. Those different illustrations point us to the kingdom, city, house, we might say, of Satan himself, of the enemy of God. And Jesus' point is, well, he can't be divided against himself or else it wouldn't stand. The kingdom of Satan is not divided against itself. There is not civil war within the house of Satan. It's a ridiculous accusation to say, I drive out Satan by the power of Satan. You see that? It's, a, uh, it's foolishness on the face of it. It's a, it's a pointless argument Jesus is making. He, Satan is not divided against himself. I don't cast out by his power. His second response in verse 27 is if we are to say that that's true, if we're to take your logic as true, then not only do I cast out by Satan, but who else? Verse 27, your sons too. So what's going on here is that there's some other sort of exorcism going on. Uh, there's some other sort of, of ministry, probably by some spiritually aware group within the Pharisees that is successfully at times casting out demons. We don't really know much else about that. Jesus acknowledges it's true, and he says to the Pharisees, well, if I'm doing so much greater than they're doing it, and you say, I'm doing it by Satan, then what are they doing it by? He says, your own logic condemns yourself. So it's wrong for that second reason. And then the third reason, their explanation that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons, the third reason that is wrong is in verse 29, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I, in casting out demons, am plundering and robbing, am destroying the house of Satan. And the reason he can do that is because he's already bound the strong man, right? The, the guard, the defender, the head of the house is, is already tied up and secure so that Jesus can go about this work of casting out the other demons. Now, this metaphor has incredible implications, doesn't it? I mean, in, in Jesus almost skims over this truth that he has greater power and greater authority than the archenemy of God, Satan himself. And he has so much power and authority that he can bind Satan in his own house and can go forth and plunder 
and drive out the demons wherever and whenever he finds them on earth. It's not some equal power of good versus evil that we're sitting on the edge of our seats waiting to see who's going to ultimately win out in the end, right? Jesus is telling us he's already bound Satan, that the authority that the very enemy of God exercises in this fallen world is only that authority that God has granted him. Or we can use this language of binding him. It's like Jesus has put Satan on a leash. And he can only go as far as Jesus lets him. And he can ransack the rest of the house. So here's the explanation. Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's wrong for three reasons as Jesus argues back to the Pharisees. What is the true reason? What is the actual reason that Jesus can cast out demons? He gives it to us in verse 28. It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. See, there's not an internal struggle within the kingdom of Satan. No, it is an attack being waged from without. Jesus says, I come from without to lay siege to the kingdom and the house of Satan. He takes it by force. Therefore, verse 28, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is... One of the most profound things Jesus says in all his ministry. He has been preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but now he's telling us in him driving out the demon from the oppressed man is that the kingdom of heaven is actually here. It has been brought to bear in the fallen, destroyed world. That yes, we pray that God's kingdom would come. Yes, we we wait the final return of Jesus, when every wrong was going to be put to right, when every tear is wiped away. But we can say, because he says it, that his kingdom has come even now, that the king rules and reigns now, that the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. You've maybe heard this description before, you uh, history students who have thought of World War II, the idea that D-Day has come, but V-Day has not yet come, right? The idea that the The troops have arrived on enemy territory and the rest of the battle is already guaranteed. All right, Jesus is here, his kingdom has come. It's just a matter of time before the day and the celebration of victory. As Jesus draws the lines, his ultimate question to the Pharisees, to the amazed crowd, to the demon-oppressed man who is now free, even to every one of us, is a question of loyalty. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no place for neutrality when the King Jesus comes and demands loyalty. We cannot claim we're part of a different kingdom. We cannot claim we don't even believe in him in the first place so he has no claim over me there's no third way right there's no room here for agnostics to say i don't know if i believe that god is true or not there's no room here for universalists to say jesus is good for you but he's not good for me right when king jesus comes there is no place to run hide or evade you are either with him or you are against him. We live in a, in, a, in a day, in an age, where I think this 
casual, arrogant dismissal of Jesus is everywhere. Uh, maybe, maybe not with these same words that he works by the prince of demons, but I'm sure you've encountered it with friends or neighbors that you want to have serious conversations about the Lord with, and they will casually dismiss you, almost literally with the flip of a hand. I mean, we, we very much live in the 21st century in, in unserious times with unserious people. You ask hard questions, well, I can just go look at my phone and distract myself. I can turn on the constant news cycle. I can do anything I want to take my mind away from spiritual and heavenly realities. Friends, there is no no casual dismissal of Jesus. The king of the world, of the universe, will not be casually dismissed. You're either with him or you are against him. He draws clear lines in verses 25 to 30. How serious is this, you might ask? How serious is it whether I'm with him or against him? I want to show you secondly in our text. The king Jesus not only draws the lines, he declares the stakes. What are we fighting for? How serious is this? That's pretty serious. Verses 31 and 32. What is at stake in this demand for allegiance? It's a one-word answer. Everything. Everything. I said this at the beginning of the sermon. King Jesus is speaking hard words, but he is still the gracious king that Matthew has introduced us to. This is the same king of last week's verses 19 and 20 who does not break a bruised reed, who does not quench a smoldering wick. This is the the same king of the previous week who says it is, Lawful to heal and do good on the Sabbath. It's the same king of the previous week who does not mount up heavy burdens on those who labor and are heavy laden, but who gives rest, who is gentle and lowly. This king is gracious. He forgives our sins. He stands ready and and able to welcome us into his kingdom of grace. It is a kingdom of compassion and kindness and, and tenderhearted mercy towards broken and needy sinners like us. And yet, and yet there is the warning of verse 31, that there is one sin that will not be forgiven. The king of all grace, the king of seemingly infinite forgiveness, gives this very warning of a sin that is not forgiven. That sin is, I'll give it, I'll define it for you, and then I'll explain what it means. The sin is rejection of the king. And it's not just any old rejection. It is persistent, stubborn, determined rejection of the king. I know you've heard these verses before. You may have had questions about them before. So the sermon title comes, The Unforgivable Sin, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What is blasphemy? Well, if you, if you actually read the next verse, Jesus defines blasphemy for us, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. That is blasphemy right there. Speaking a word against. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. There it is even even more succinctly. Speaking against 
We might use the word slander or the word profane. Blaspheme is usually particularly attached to speaking a word against God, to blaspheme God. Now, you would think speaking a word against Jesus would be one of those things that goes unforgiven, right? Jesus tells us even speaking a word against him is forgiven. Do you see the grace of this king? You could speak a word, you could blaspheme, slander, even curse King Jesus. And his infinite love and mercy is sufficient to cover for that sin. So what is the, what, what is the second part then? What does it mean to sin against the Holy Spirit? And why is that not forgiven? Why is sin against the Holy Spirit somehow different or worse than sinning against the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus. Well, some would say the Holy Spirit is, is greater or more important than Jesus. We know, of course, that's not true. Uh, some understand this to be speaking of, uh, of sin that happens before Pentecost and then after Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. Maybe there's some difference there. I actually think the key lies in, a, in an unusual place uh, in the Old Testament. I'm going to read a couple verses from Numbers, chapter 15. You you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. Numbers chapter 15 reflects on different types of sin in Israel. How is different type of sin punished amongst the people of God? Now Moses writes in Numbers 15 verse 27, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord. For the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make an atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. So there's one category. You just make a mistake, an unintentional sin. Make an offering, atonement, forgiveness in the Old Testament law. But if you look down at verse 30, we read of another kind. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. What does that read like? That reads like no forgiveness. So the opposite of an unintentional sin in the book of Numbers is a high-handed sin. So we can understand high-handed sin as intentional. High-handed, knowing what we're doing knowing beforehand exactly how we're going to sin, how we're going to commit uh, this transgression of God's law and doing it anyway. So turn back to Matthew. What what does the New Testament teach us about one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us. So we might understand that rejecting Jesus in his explanation here, is not believing in Jesus when, quote, the evidence is ambiguous. We're not quite sure who it is. It's a miracle worker, but is this really the son of God? It's the son of David, but is this really the Messiah? Sort of sinning against him, but unsure really who he is. He hasn't been fully revealed to our mind and heart. The opposite of that, rejecting the Holy Spirit 
would be disbelieving in Jesus when his actions clearly demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is present. Put another way, it's saying against Jesus when we actually know who he is. When the Holy Spirit has shown the Pharisees, the unbelievers, the crowd, us, who Jesus truly is, we see him with clear eyes and we still reject him. Or as one commentator described the difference, he says the difference is between failure to recognize the light on one hand and a deliberate rejection of the light once it has been recognized. You see the difference between unintentional and high-handed sin, between unintentional and an arrogant dismissal of someone who you know exactly who he is. So let's go back to our definition. What is not forgiven according to Jesus? It is rejection of God. It is not just the one-time rejection of God. It's not even possibly the accidental rejection of God. It is the flagrant, willful, persistent rejection of God. Let me put it another way. If you commit this sin, you know you're doing it. You know exactly what you're doing. And Jesus gives this as a warning. He is warning about the hardening effects of unbelief. Have the Pharisees committed this sin yet? I don't know. I don't know who's committed this sin and who hasn't. But I know for sure the Pharisees are on their way to committing it. We're going to see this week and next week uh, a, a gradual hardening of their heart. So who does this passage apply to? It's kind of scary. Who does it apply to? Well, I think it very, very specifically applies to unbelievers. Who is in danger of committing this unforgivable sin? It is the Pharisees. It is the Pharisees who are in danger, not only of rejecting Jesus, which they already have right here, but a constant and a willful and a flagrant and a persistent ongoing rejection of Jesus. You see, he gives these warnings, not that somebody might have sinned and then, oh, well, it's too late now. Now that they've had a change of heart, it's too late for Jesus to forgive them. That's not it at all. Well, the committing of this sin is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing, persistent, stubborn, hard-hearted rejection of God. And once you start down that path without a radical intervention of the Spirit, it only gets worse. But let me tell you who this does not apply to this morning. This verse does not apply to Christians. This does not apply to believers. It is a good thing, if you are a Christian, to know that you are a Christian. We call this assurance, being sure that God knows us and God loves us. It's possible to be a Christian and not have full assurance all the time. There's many of you that are like that. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Seeking to be sure that we are beloved and saved by God is a good thing. We should still be sober-minded about the warnings of Scripture. We should still take seriously uh, the commands to pursue God in holiness. But God does not ever want his children to be afraid that we're going to make some mistake and all of a sudden we're out. <laughs> that all of a sudden God's grace is not going to cover us. As one author says, professing believers 
who fear that they have committed the unforgivable sin, and maybe you've been there before, that means that you are showing a concern for your spiritual warfare, a welfare, excuse me, which by definition proves you have not committed it. If you're worried that you have committed it, the worry itself is proof you haven't committed it. Because the worry itself is a sign of a spiritual awareness and desire and yearning to be right with God. It shows a soft, softened heart towards him and not a hardened heart. All that means is that some of you should be very, very relieved and some of you should be very, very concerned over the warning that Jesus give, gives here. Because I remind you, what is at stake? It's everything. It's everything. So the lines are drawn. The stakes are declared. Now what? Let's hit that final passage. We'll do this briefly. Our third point is that King Jesus demands the hearts. He demands the hearts. Verses 33 to 37 brings up this common metaphor that Jesus uses of a tree and fruit, right? A tree produces fruit. And what kind of fruit is produced, is indicative, tells us what the tree is like. So if there's rotten fruit, it means the tree is rotten. If there's good fruit, it means the tree is good. So the fruit that Jesus is focusing on here is how a person speaks. Uh, We see that, right? In verse uh, 36, speaks of careless words. Verse 34, you speak good, right? Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. That good treasure is that which is within us. The bringing forth is that which we speak. So bad speaking here is what? It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We've just seen that. So Jesus is telling us that every one of us will have to give an account on the day of judgment of the words that come out of our mouth. And you know what he says about those words? He says, every careless word. I think what he's saying to the Pharisees is, watch it, guys. You've just made a ridiculous argument to try to dismiss Jesus. I have shown you it's wrong. I have shown you what's at stake. Watch your words. (laughs) Don't go down that path. Don't commit to believing what may have just been careless words that came out of your mouth. Because I have shown you where those words will take you. Now, you know what he's saying. He's not saying that words themselves are the things that save us or condemn us. Words simply reveal what's going on in our hearts. So the words are the fruit, good or bad. The tree is that which is revealed by the fruit. It is the inner character of the man, of the woman. So if if our words come out of the inner man, then there's sort of no such thing as careless words, are there? I mean, you, you've heard these public apologies from public figures, politicians, athletes, musicians that are just a joke, right? They're caught on a hot mic saying something they shouldn't say, something offensive. And they'll come out, and what do they, what do they always say when they apologize? They say, that's not who I really am. Well, Jesus says those careless words are who you are. I mean, just think for a moment if somebody recorded every word you said between last Sunday and today. That is a scary thought, isn't it? You see, our words against Jesus reveal a heart against Jesus. And he tells us this to make this one point. You don't just change your words. You must change the root and the heart of the tree. 
What is he saying? He's saying what Jesus says in John chapter six, chapter three, you must be born again. You cannot just change your, you cannot say, oops, Jesus, sorry about those words. Let me just say the right words over here. No, you must be born again. Do you know who he, he talks to the demon oppressed men? He talks to the, the crowd that's doubting and, and maybe amazed. And he talks even now to the hard hearted Pharisees. They are on the path to sinning the unforgivable sin. And yet he grabs them, as it were, by their collars and tells them there is still time. Don't change your words, change your heart, and your heart is only changed by faith in Jesus, who gives you a new heart. Jesus, the king, calls every one of us to follow him. And you see in these verses how the lines are drawn between the two different signs. You see the stakes are declared. It's everything. But here's what's amazing as we end is that as the, the battle and the armament of King Jesus is arrayed against a sinful and rebellious people, the white flag still flies. That he offers peace and he offers grace for the most hard-hearted amongst us. There is still time to flee to our king who cleanses us of our sin and makes us righteous in his sight. You see, friends, the sides are clear. The victory is sure. So come to Jesus today, for if you are not with him, you are against him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we confess before you our hard, sinful, and rebellious hearts. I pray that you would, by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, move in us this day. That we would turn from our sin and trust upon Jesus. I pray for those who may be here who have turned a deaf ear to your warnings who casually dismiss and ignore Jesus and his gospel, that you would use these words, even these harsh words, to spare them and to call them back from the point of no return. And Father, I pray you would comfort every one of us, free us from a ridiculous fear from having sinned this sin, and give us peace and rest, trust under your banner, uh, under your gospel, under your king. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to prepare to come to the Lord's table by singing uh, again out of our red hymnals, hymn 499, entitled uh, Rock of Ages, Clef for